Welcome to another Calvary Baltimore B-Side with our senior pastor, Josh Plantholt. B-Sides are a companion to the weekly sermon, giving an in-depth look behind the teaching. And now with running commentary to complement this week's sermon, here's Pastor Josh. Welcome to B-Side. We are in Revelation uh, chapter 9, verse 20 and 21. Uh, Oh, Sunday was fun. (laughs) If anyone's been listening to me long enough, you know by now how much I love lists. Uh, I, I just as I mature as a minister of the gospel, as I mature as a Christian, I, my personal private devotions and prayer life. And, um, the more I, the more I see that when God places writes these lists, they are pregnant with so much meaning. Uh, so we had a lot of stuff to look at on Sunday. And uh, by God's grace, we have a good bit of stuff to look at today. This is going to be our more densely uh, packed B-sides that we've had in a while. Um, So let's let's hop into this here. Uh, So far in Revelation, uh, God has poured out so many judgments uh, from chapters 6, 7, 8. Uh, and then chapter 9, the unsaved world is tormented, we saw from the first woe, the fifth trumpet, uh, for five months. Tormented to the point where they longed for death. And then this gives way to the second woe, the sixth trumpet, uh, and this gives way to a third of the world being killed. Then verse 20 and 21 reveal the heart of the unbeliever at this time. And you would think, after all of these judgments, that people would be repentant. But that is just not the case. Verse 20 says, uh, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. So after all of these seals, after all of these trumpets and these woes, still they are unrepentant. And it's helpful to pause for a moment, which we didn't have time to unpack fully on Sunday, but do you know what that word repentant means? It means that they did not, in this context, did not turn from their sin and turn towards Christ. That's what repentance is. Uh, you turn away from one way of living, and you now go towards uh, the godly way of living, running the race towards Christ, as Paul might say, or uh, Psalm 23, being restored uh, or maybe placed on the paths of righteousness for his namesake, for God's glory. So it's not only, in order for someone to be repentant, they can't do one of those two things, they have to do both. And we see this a lot in Christian circles, don't we? Where someone makes a profession for Christ, but they haven't turned from their sin. <laughs> so they're kind of, uh, maybe they use the language of 1 Kings 18, they're groping between two opinions. Uh, to use a modern analogy, they're sitting on the fence, uh, which is not repentance. You, you need to reject, as Jesus would probably phrase it, die. You need to uh, die uh, to the world and be born again. 
Uh, so this means that they did not turn from their sins and turn towards Christ in the context of Revelation 9. And I, I have some thoughts as to why. Why they did not repent. The people that are on planet Earth at this time, I was thinking about them. And so far in this book, we see that they are responsible for killing millions upon millions of believers. And in order for them to repent, for example, like in Acts chapter 2, or like Paul on his way to Damascus, in order to turn to Christ, to Jesus, they would first have to turn from their sins, which includes, turning from sin also includes turning from false ideologies. Repenting of old bad ways of thinking, which would mean they would have to admit that they were wrong about killing Christians. You know, when I think about this in our context, has anyone ever tried to have a calm, logical conversation with someone who thinks almost the complete opposite of you on a certain topic? Now, if you're in these discussions and you do not lose your temper or get into the mud with name-calling or trying to question the intelligence of anyone who thinks differently than me, but simply just stick to try to reasoning calmly with them. One of the things you'll notice uh, when you're having these sort of civil discussions, as long as they remain civil, uh, it, it, you'll notice if you're knowledgeable on the subject that you are debating, uh, you're well thought out on the topic, even if you can completely and rationally and calmly dismantle their views. So, for example, we want to talk about abortion. We start having this conversation about abortion. And my, my thing is, okay, when does the, when does the, the pregnant pregnancy become a child in your opinion and you know that becomes a really muddy discussion because they can't answer when it becomes a child because some mothers it's a child in the womb and some it's a child once it passes the canal and I thought well what if it's a c-section <laughs> you see what I'm saying like there's as soon as it leaves the body that's when it becomes a child like you you do Okay, well, it has toes, fingers, thought, you know, there's all sorts of... So when you, when you can calmly dismantle their view, more often than not, you're, you'll find out if you engage in these rational, calm discussions, uh, people don't change their mind. Like, if you present knowledge to them, they, they will not change their mind. And Christians are guilty of this, too, of course. And more often than not, you'll notice if you are having this discussion... They, they'll get flustered and they'll try to change the sh subject or what they'll do is they'll double down and then turn the argumentation into a moral issue. So anyone who denies a woman's choice, though you can't logically rationalize it, it then becomes a moral discussion. Uh, and now anyone who opposes a woman's choice is a monster. Uh, and, and often, you know, an easy way to tell who's losing a debate or a heated discussion is who's becoming louder or more emotional. Because when you can't stand on your ideas, you have to lean on feelings or get loud and angry. And here in Revelation, if this society is anything like our own, then I'm sure that many of the people uh, who would not repent were those who did not have the courage to admit that maybe they were wrong in their thinking. 
maybe maybe they were wrong uh, about Jesus and these Christians that they demanded die. Maybe they were wrong when they turned their Christian neighbors in who were hiding. Maybe they were wrong when they seized and plundered their houses. Remember, thief, theft is in this list. Maybe they were wrong when they advocated for hanging Christians from the gallows. Maybe they were wrong. But I, I'm telling you, if this happened today, instead of entertaining that idea that maybe their ideology is false, as Paul says in Romans 1, they suppress the truth, they suppress the, suppress the knowledge of the truth for a lie, they would rather double down. You know, creating an, a God out of yourself is the last idol an unbeliever is willing to smash. It's the last one man hangs on to here. And, and especially in our culture, your opinion becomes your identity. And to reject someone's opinion in our culture then becomes a complete rejection of that person as a whole, which is chaos, craziness to me. Because then you can't get anywhere on rational discussion. It just becomes tribalism, of course. But so here in Revelation, if these people are anything like our generation, instead of admitting they're wrong about Jesus and his people, they double down in their idol worship of not only false gods, but, you know, maybe themselves. Um, because they can't admit they're wrong. <laughs> That's not an option. Um... And then verse 21, we'll keep going. On a side note, I, I got these this ember mug. It's like that. It's a self-heated mug. I couldn't love this thing anymore. And I just got another charger. And this is my old one. I got my new one I'm putting upstairs today. And I can charge it while I'm working. This is, I, I feel like I just stepped into Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. This is, I could not be happier. I got scalding hot coffee all day. Oh, sorry, verse 21. <laughs> Nor, and, and here's how verse 20 and 21 are structured. Verse 20 tells us they did not repent of their ideology, of their religion. And in verse 21, they will not turn from their sinful lifestyle. So now, this section in, in, in verse 21 is going to talk specifically about the sins that, that will be prevalent in the end time. So just so we're clear, and I really hammered this Sunday, these are the sins that Satan wants to grow to pervert any and all cultures. These are the sins. They will not repent of their idol worship, and these are the sins that are that are being unchecked and maybe even advocated for in their idol worship. And this is what Satan wants to grow, not only in the end times culture, but wants to grow it today. This is his plan to pervert mankind in these last days. Verse 21, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries. I hit murders uh, Sunday, but I want to, and I hit sorceries some a good bit Sunday, but but I want to unpack this a little more. Like, what in the world does sorceries mean? <laughs> like, if you went around Baltimore and were like, you're guilty of sorcery, like, <laughs> someone wouldn't know if that was an insult or a Harry Potter's theme. Like, oh, what? Uh, because, you know, just unless things radically change, I don't see 
a lot of sorceries or, or magic potions being used in 50 years, 100 years, 2,000 years. Well, well, first, in all three lists, this sorceries is listed. So this isn't a throwaway sin. This is something that's going to be very prevalent. And and interesting here, the, the, there's two different words used for sorceries. Uh, in the Greek, there's pharmakia and pharmakos. Uh, and both are nearly identical. A pharmakia has more of a um, a chemical element to it is is my understanding, and I, I could be off here. Pharmacos, uh, pharmacos, though, that's used the other two times, uh, seems much more implied to be sorcery, witchcraft sort of uh, stuff. So there is a chemical element that's heavy in this, which is what I hammered on Sunday, but there's also a real spiritual uh, element here. And so, full transparency, I, I really... I really believe the Bible is the word of God. <laughs> Crazy thought for a minister of the gospel, yet here we are in 2022. That's a radical idea amongst clergy. I really believe the Bible is the word of God. I, and I really believe the Bible is the word of God to the church, to us. And so as a result, when I come to something I don't understand, like, how is sorcery going to be prevalent? I really try to track it down because I believe God's telling me the truth. So point being, I spent probably way too much time last week trying to figure out what this sorcery means. And so in order to understand how to apply this today, because again, I don't know anyone who uses magic potions or incantations. <laughs> so in order to understand how to apply this today, it will first be helpful to understand what this typically meant to the people who first received it, the seven churches. So when we're at a sticking point in the book of Revelation, there's really two big interpretive things we have to understand. What did this mean to the people who first received it? Because God wrote this letter to seven specific churches, and it couldn't have made no sense to them. That doesn't jive. Uh, it must have made some sense to that culture. So we want to lean on cultural stuff. And of course, the other big thing is, is how how is this propped up in other portions of Scripture? Because Scripture explains Scripture, which, again, create a radical idea, but that's, that's what I believe. Um, and so first... Uh, pharmakia, uh, pharmacosis, in this culture, in in the first century, to the seven churches, uh, pharmakia, pharmacos, uh, typically uh, involved blended herbs and roots and some animal parts, and then either they would burn the sacrifice, and we ran through this not too long ago on Sunday, that the smoke would ascend as if the deities of whatever... Uh, whatever false gods they had, or even Yahweh, uh, we see that 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 this. The, but but it, thinking about sorceries, that the smoke held the magic and was then offered up to uh, whatever realm it went up to. Or you would take these different elements, uh, you know, herbs and roots and animal parts, and it would be made into a type of potion to be ingested or drank either by you or by your victim. 
So, for example, uh, a spell in the Egyptian magical papyri calls for a mixture of cumin. I love cumin. I got it marinating on my steaks right now. Uh, and the hair from a black donkey. I don't have one of them. A dappled she-goat and a black bull. The sorcerer would then call on the demons of the abyss and earth and heaven, basically calling upon every source available uh, to do their bidding. Now, potions could be used as love potions. Uh, from what I can gather is a type of roofie. So you would give this to somebody and they'd get out of their mind and you could take advantage of them. Um, but, you know, there, there were poisons. There were things that could make you crazy. And so point being, there were lots of different ways to apply pharmacia in this culture. Uh, it, it, either it's the summoning of demons or ingesting of substances. Um, you know, we, we have to understand that there is, there is a real dark spiritual component to this pharmacia, pharmacos, uh, in this passage. That in the first century church, again, they would have taken this as dealing directly with the demonic or to hurt people. Uh, and so, yes, I believe that this might include mushrooms and tripping and all that sort of stuff for enlightenment. Um, but there also seems to be a direct connection to, to darkness here uh, that we need to be aware of. And, and an interesting note, uh, sorceries or, or pharmacia, pharmacos, in all three lists, I found this fascinating. In all three of the lists of sins in, in the book of Revelation, uh, pharmakia, pharmakos, all, in all three lists are placed next to sexual immorality. Now, some of these lists are long. That's beyond coincidence. So uh, maybe these spells, potions, or drugs are, are, are connected directly to lust. So my, my thought is maybe maybe in the end days, whatever these drugs are, whatever these potions are, whatever this conjuring services are, that 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 these that these that pharmacia and sex are going to be used together in, in tandem uh, in the end days. And you know, if we if we look back at what the early Gnostics were going through in John's day, people were getting really drunk. Um, at, at the communion table, and then the communion table, the Eucharist, was turning into orgies uh, all the way back at the early second century. So um, this is Satan's plan to pervert the church all the way back from the very beginning. Uh, Mind-altering oneself and then connecting evil, perverse religious experiences with perverse sexuality. Um, and so how that plays out in the end times, I don't know. Hopefully we're not there to find out and God has taken us out of here. That's, that's my prayer. Uh, and then it goes on, or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Uh, and we're done our reading. Sexual immorality in the Greek pornea primarily involves sexual evil or lust, such as adultery, homosexuality, pornography. And this is the main way to understand the sin of pornea. But in the book of Revelation, this word pornea, which we render in the English as sexual immorality, is used in a really unique way. So every once in a while in the Bible, there's a word that you think has a nice little category attached to it. Uh, sexual immorality, por pornea, sexual sin. 
But then God establishes the word, and then he uses it in an odd place to connect these themes in Scripture. Uh, so, pornea, obviously, the primary use of the word, again, is sexual sin. But the book of Revelation uses this pornea in a really different way. Um, pornea, throughout Revelation, has been established as sexual sin all, all through the Bible, all through the New Testament. And then in Revelation, it, it then is connected to immoral relationships between people and evil. And you think, well, that's not a far jump. But, but listen to this. For example, in Revelation 18.3, we're going to read about the kings of the earth who have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality with the city of Babylon. <laughs> they will have pornea with Babylon. Now, obviously, you can't have sexual relations with a city <laughs> unless the scope of the word also includes something beyond just that act. Uh, it then also now includes, according to Revelation, a general unclean relationship. So the people in the end days will, of course, be enlightened, engaged in a plethora of sexual sins, but will also have evil relationships, pornea, between them and evil aspects of society and big government and cities, like we'll see in chapter 18 and 19 with the city of Babylon. The, the people will become, in the end days, so intoxicated by the wealth, the lavishness of their cities, that the people, the, the merchants we're going to see will mourn for Babylon as if they lost a lover. And as we look to the first century, this pornea of society, again, for clarity in the first century, was common amongst the citizens of Rome. The people became so intoxicated and caught up in being, I'm Roman, <laughs> in the Roman way of life, it became an idolatrous, pornea relationship between the citizens and its government, its culture. And so too will the people in many ways in the end times. And again, as we look at how to apply this to us, we need to make sure we neither fall into sexual immorality with lusts or with culture. Um, we need to be on guard here. So if I can summarize this point for us, this sin of pornea is beyond just the act of sexual sin. This is a matter of love and lust. Do, do we love and lust for the things and pleasures and status of this world? Or do we more love and long, I wouldn't use the word lust, but more love and long for God? So there's an intensity of relationship that's happening in the book of Revelation. And are we intensely longing for, maybe lustfully, uh, for the cultures and the approval of, of the world? Or do we long for God? So these things are held side by side in this book. Uh, and that's today's text. I, I want to look at one, one big thought. Morning sin. The first and second woe are so connected uh, to the Old Test to, to an Old Testament passage in the book of Ezekiel. 
Uh, in Ezekiel 9, the godly are marked by God, as we saw the unbelievers were in, in, Revela in Revelation 9, 4. Uh, and like the believers in Ezekiel 9 and Revelation 9, they were to be unharmed by the plagues. But in Ezekiel 9 and in Revelation, the believers are grieved over the sins of their people. Uh, let, let's read this, Ezekiel 9, 4. The Lord said to him, Pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men. And if you remember back at the beginning of chapter 9, there's a clear connection to this, as the people with the marks on their forehead were not to be harmed. Pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on their foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. And of course, Revelation 9 ends by telling us of the abominations in the last day, opposite of those who are repentant, opposite of the cries of the martyrs. How long, O oh Lord, till you avenge our blood? There is a mourning in the book of Revelation over the sins of the unrepentant. And here's what's being said, if I can quote Jesus here. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Today's passage is more than a cautionary tale to believers to keep away from some sins. As we look at the Old Testament passage this is building upon, we should see that believers should look at the sins around us, and not just as a warning, but as a source of, of grief <laughs> for us as sin and evil grow and increase as we approach the end times god's people as laid out in, in in ezekiel 9 as laid out in revelation god's people as laid out in matthew 5 truly god's people will grow in their mourning as jesus just said from the beatitudes christians will grow as we grow in holiness, as we grow in godliness, will 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 grow in their signing, sighing, sorry, sighing and groaning over evil, as Ezekiel nine points out. As James says in the book, in his book, James four seven, submit yourself therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep, and let your laughter turn to be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. James doesn't want Christians to just be sad. <laughs> James is talking about resisting the devil, of cleansing our hands from sins, and then mourning, mourning over sin. Loved ones, th those who are marked by God are filled with His Spirit. You will mourn sin. And not just personal sin, but all sin. As God's people in our American context, we should groan and be grieved that people are taking to the streets this very day and are demanding that 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 the government should be should, should allow babies to be killed in the womb. We should be grieved by that. 
that that our own country, men and women, have have gotten to this point. Or when there's an act of prejudice or, or malice or ungodly rage, Christians should be grieved by that. As believers, Christians grieve. We mourn for a few reasons. We grieve because we know that God grieves over sin. If we are going to be like David, we are going to have a heart that longs and pants after God, we need to hate sin because God hates sin. Of course, he hates sin so much, he sent his own son to die for the sin of the world. So, no one hates sin more than God. We grieve because we know that sin kills its host. Romans chapter 1 is very clear on this. A people who give themselves totally over to some evil, they will ultimately be destroyed. They will destroy themselves with said evil because that is the design of evil, to kill and destroy its host. You know, Sodom and Gomorrah is a clear picture of this. Christians grieve because we know that our holy and just God, we need to know, loved ones, that God will not suffer evil forever. There comes a point in civilizations like the pre-flood world, like Sodom and Gomorrah, like Egypt, like Nineveh, like Babylon, like Jesus said over and over and over again about Jerusalem, about Rome, that God says enough. Enough sin. I, I cannot deal with this anymore. If a culture, I mean, he could, but his justice demands something ought to be done. If a culture pushes long enough and hard enough for evil, God, like he has time and time again, will let that culture fall under incredible judgment. And so God's people mourn for sin, knowing that God will not remain quiet forever. And so this is what I'd like us to get from this. Believers are to be a people who hate and mourn sin. We're to be grieved over injustice. Because we know injustice is evil. Because we know and belong to a holy and just God. But as believers also know and need to know that the grief the Christian has the grief of all believers, it does not last forever. As Jesus says in Matthew 5, the, the believer, the believer's mourning is guaranteed to turn into comfort. Every single believer who has ever lived who uh, and who hates and is grieved by sin will one day dwell with God forever in a place with no sin. Us Christians go to a place where it says every tear is wiped from our eyes. Now, don't get me wrong. There is so much joy in being a Christian. So much joy. Like, I'm a really happy person. I'm a really joyful person most of the time. But, but in the life of the godly, there needs to be some sorrow. There needs to be some grief. Paul taps into this in 2 Corinthians 6 when he says, Believers are to be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. 
And even in our sorrow, we're to be rejoicing. And again, there comes, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. We hold the promise that the comfort is coming even in our sorrow. And what we need to see here in Revelation is that this sorrow will eventually give way to, to, uh, to, to rejoicing and to joy. And for us, while we are on earth, we, we need to see evil and, and, and sins, especially the four we looked at in today's passages, what they are. When we come to the lists of sins in the Bible, we need to pay attention because we then need to look at them through, through our culture and realize how we should be grieving and where we should be engaged. And that these sins, these we need to see these sins in our culture for what they are. And they are snares and fiery darts from the evil one. The lust that your friend has, the pharmacia problem that your family member has, the as God's people, what we should have eyes to see that these are not simply bad vices. A young man addicted to pornography is not a bad vice. These are tools from Satan himself designed to drag those boys, young men, to drag people into the very pits of hell. And we should be grieved when we see these sins and then love these people enough to give them the good news that Jesus can save them and help them, not only eternally, but out of evil. And also to love these people enough to shine and show them the good news. You know, there's a saying, uh, one in a thousand men read the Bible, but the thousand men read that one man. You know, we need to show people that we're believers. We need to show people that we're Christians. To be, as Jesus would say, a light to the world. And to season our speech with salt. You know, I notice all the time when I'm out in public, when I start talking, I think maybe a little bit because I'm loud. I don't mean to be. I just, I'm being. Uh, but people turn and look at me all the time. I know. I know that I sound different. I know that my, my speech is seasoned with salt. And not always, not perfectly, of course, but, but there's an element that believers need to show the unsaved world, let the unsaved world hear that we belong to God, that we're God's people who act like God's people for the purpose of not only telling them of the way, but showing them the way. And so again, as we look at this list in Revelation 9, we need to recognize it for what it is, fiery darts from the evil one. And us believers need to not only be grieved by these things, knowing that comfort's going to come one day, but then get engaged. To be grieved enough into action. <laughs> to love enough like our Father who so loved the world gave. To love like our Father who art in heaven. To love people enough to give of ourselves. To engage with them, to help, as Jude would say, drag them from out of the fire. So anyways, uh, how long do we go? 37 minutes. This was the longest B-side in a while. Sorry. <laughs> and you're welcome. Uh, but we had so much to get through. I told you I love lists. Anyways, I love you guys. Uh, let's, let's pray, huh? God, we love you. We, we 
praise you. We, we thank you. We thank you for all you've provided. And we thank you for all that you've done. We thank you for all that you're doing. We ask that you would guide and protect us. We ask that you would take special care of our families. God, we pray for those of us that have children, loved ones that are wayward, that you would restore them to the paths of righteousness. And God, if need be, use us in this endeavor. And God, we pray for those of us that are running our race well, God, that you would strengthen us, God. Give strength to our bones, to our bodies. God, we pray for those in our church that are sick, that are fighting illness, that are in, in, in a drag-out battle with whatever. God, we, we ask for a special day of mercy for them. Give, them. give them strength and peace, we do pray. And be with us now. Bless us. Take care of us. We love you, God. Thank you. And in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I love you all so much. Uh, you have a good day now. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this Calvary Baltimore B-Side. If you'd like to get in touch or come visit us at Calvary Baltimore, our website is calvarychapelbaltimore.org. You can email us at calvary.faithlife at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you've been blessed by today's teaching and would like to donate to the work God is doing through Calvary Baltimore, go to our website at calvarychapelbaltimore.org and click Donate Now. Until next time, keep drawing closer to God through the reading of His Word and join us again for the next Calvary Baltimore B-Side.